0: All right, good to be with you guys. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. For those of you just joining us, we just started. You're picking a perfect time to, to come visit. We're just starting the book of Genesis, and we are only on the second verse. We're making really good, really good time here. We're going really slow. <laughs> Last week, we looked at three words. This week, we'll do a little bit more. All right, I have really good news for you guys this morning. Are you excited to hear it? Okay. Are you sure? You're 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 sure because we could just not do this if you want, and we could just you know go have lunch. You guys want to hear the good news? Okay, cool. Right. It's at the end of the sermon though, so you got to (laughs) stay. It is the sermon, actually, as a joke. Let's pray, guys. Father, um, God, we need you to speak. We need to be reminded, Lord, of the truth of who you are and what you're doing and what you're gonna do. And I pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that your spirit would be here. Just like your spirit was hovering over the face of the deep, that your spirit would be hovering over this place, ready, ready, to bring about explosive life in our hearts. God, we thank you so much for the mystery of your word. And as we dive into it head first and begin to unpack it, God, I just pray that you would lead us and guide us. Father, these would not be my words or our words, but they would be your words. God, make us good listeners, or that we would hear, that this would impact our heart and change our life, God. We pray that we would have surrendered hearts, Lord, open hearts to what you want to speak and open hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever considered the fact that when Jesus did things, um, he always did them with things? Uh, let me let me give you an example. When, when Jesus was preaching um, to a group and they were hungry, and he noticed that they were hungry, and he wanted to feed them. He didn't snap his fingers and just create bread, did he? What did he do? He took something that already existed. He took a basket full of a few loaves and a few fishes, and he multiplied it, right? He took something that already existed, and he multiplied it. I'll give you another example. When Jesus was at the wedding feast, the wedding party, and he hadn't really done any miracles yet. It was actually his first miracle, and his mother comes to him and says, hey, you know, We're out of wine. This is embarrassing. Jesus accommodates that, but what he doesn't do is he doesn't just go, wine. He doesn't just create wine. What does he do? He takes water, something that already existed, something that was already in existence, and he reshapes it. He repurposes it. He transforms it into wine. When Jesus came uh, to this earth and started picking out human beings to be part of his new creation, he didn't create new humans. What did he do? He found humans that already existed, right? Um, He took, um, you know, prostitutes and sinners and lepers and traitors and he turned them into his disciples. He reformed them. He repurposed them. He transformed them. People that already existed. He took demon-possessed people and turned them into evangelists. When he went to pick his disciples, he, he didn't go, um, you know, create his own perfect people. He went and picked the people that were around. And the people that were around in Galilee were fishermen and tax collectors, sinners. He built with what was laying around. He repurposed things. When Jesus died and resurrected, he didn't get a new body. He got a reformed body. He, get, he got an updated version of the same body. He still had the holes in his hands. And in the end, when God, when Jesus comes on the clouds to finish his work, he's not going to create a brand new universe, he's going to fix and recreate this universe. Now, why am I saying all that? I'm saying it all to simply make the point that, that while God is certainly in the business of creating from nothing, we learned that last week, right? He certainly can and he does create from nothing. The reality is, is there's only really one verse largely in the Bible, and we looked at it last week that talks about God creating from nothing. But there's actually two, 23,145 verses about God forming something that's already created. The, the entirety of the Bible really is about God taking what he made and then forming it, reforming it, reshaping it. This is really what God does. And perhaps nowhere in the Bible is God's desire to see things formed um, more clearly seen than in our text today. I'm excited about this passage. We're literally just going to look at verse 2 today. And and these are some of the most mysterious, dark, and brooding words in the whole Bible. I, I sat down this week and I read those words and I went, what in the world is that talking about? Let me read them for you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, we looked at that last week, ex nihilo. God created out of nothing. There was, before there was anything, there was God. And God created the heavens and the earth. That is everything. Everything that is a thing. But verse two gets really interesting. He says, the earth was without form and void. And it was empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the of the waters. Now you're probably really used to hearing that verse, but if you could just step back and remove yourself from the fact that you're used to hearing that verse, it's pretty weird. Right? I mean, I mean, so so there's there's a formless void. God creates, but he doesn't just create everything the way that he's going to create everything. He starts with this like blank canvas of raw materials. And it's this void, empty, formless, dark abyss of water. Weird, right? I like how Eugene Peterson, um, he paraphrases it in the message. Uh, He says, first this, God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. He says, earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. It's pretty mysterious. Why? Why? You know, we don't, we don't talk as much about that verse. We usually just jump right into the, the sort of the six days where God is um, speaking creation. But there's this weird, interesting verse here where, where it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but the heavens and the earth was a formless void. In the words of Eugene Peterson, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. And God's spirit was there mysteriously floating, hovering over the waters. Like What do we do with that? And before we dive into it, I just, I just need to say something really quickly because I know that, that, that we have a tendency as those that live in 2020 with all of our intellect and all of our you know, um, understanding and our Google and our smartphone, we have, an, we have a tendency to open up Genesis 1 and go, okay, God, uh, I'm going to approach this scientifically and I'm going to figure out exactly how this fits with what I know to be true about the natural universe because I know so much. And I think God just kind of laughs at you when you do that. He goes, oh, really? I love what uh, he says to Job in Job 38, 4 through 21. God, uh, Job is questioning the Lord. And he says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Not there, right? Tell me if you have understanding, Job. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Of course, the answer is no, right? And then I love it. It's so sarcastic. God says, declare if you know all this. You know for you were born then and the number of your days is great. He's he's making fun of Job. He's mocking him. Oh, Job, you know, right? You were there, right? Your days are great. You were there when I created and of course the answer is no. No, he wasn't. So it's almost laughable when us in 2020, with all of our expertise and all of our scientific theories, come to the Bible and we go, okay, now we're going to straighten this out. And we're going to insert our theories of how the world came about into God's book. And I just think he laughs at us. Now, that's not to say that this is not scientific. It's not to say that this doesn't match with science. But we need to remember, and we talked about this last week, this is a supernatural thing that's happening in creation. If you try to take a supernatural event and then take natural thinking and try to cram that supernatural event into the natural thinking, what happens? It breaks. It falls apart. God created through supernatural means. If you can't get past the first three words of the book, in the beginning God created, three words in Hebrew, I know, I can count, okay, um, then you're, you, you might as well just walk away. God created, and he created Supernaturally. I love it in Job 26, 14. It says, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. In other words, you're digging up something here that is so big, you can just kind of get the edges of it. You're just trying to figure out what it is and how it works. And there are lots of theories, and we're going to get into some of these. In fact, I'm going to do a podcast with a couple of other pastors here in the next couple weeks um, about all of the different views of creation. And there are a lot of good, plausible views that good Orthodox Christians hold to gap theory, young earth, old earth, all of these different kinds of theories. Um, I have one myself, um, and and we'll we'll portray those in, in the podcast and let you get it. But the point here I want you to see is not how exactly did this happen. The point here I want you to see is the point that the Bible wants you to see. And if the Bible wanted you to have a robust, comprehensive, scientific document in which you could sit down and look scientifically and see how everything exactly happened, it would give it to you. And guess what? It didn't. God wants you to see something here. And the thing he wants you to see is not something you can win an apologetic argument with, primarily. So let's dive into this verse. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now Moses wants you to see two things in the first two verses of the Bible. It's very important. The first thing he wants you to see is the reality of cosmic origination. That's a really big way of saying God made everything. Everything that was made was made by God. Verse 1 makes that abundantly, abundantly clear. In the beginning, God created. Okay, that's the first thing. We looked at that last week. The second thing he wants you to see here is the need for cosmic organization. So not only the reality of cosmic origination, but the need for cosmic organization. And that means that God, for some reason, and we'll talk about this the whole morning, for some reason, God didn't just come in and make everything perfect. He didn't choose to do it that way. Instead, he made everything, and then he formed it, organized it. And then interestingly, he put man in the garden and told him to do the same thing. He said, man, go take the raw materials of the earth and go create and go reform now, both of these realities are, are important, the fact that God is the origination of everything and the fact that God is the organization of everything. But can I just say this? Um, if you look at how many verses talk about one of the things and how many the verses talk about the second thing, I would say the second thing is more important. Okay? Yes, God made everything. But what the biblical author here seems to emphasize is God organizing everything. God forming everything into something more beautiful. God taking raw material and shaping it. That seems to be the emphasis of verse 2. And so we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions with this, okay? First of all, why does God create stuff before he forms it? Does that make sense? Why? I mean... Why doesn't he just make it the way he's going to make it anyways? Why does he start with this weird, scary, dark, you know, um, inhabitable, is that a word? Inhabitable? Inhabitationable? Inhabit. Somebody help me out here. I'm struggling. Inhabitable. Did I say that? Why did it sound off? I think I'm dyslexic. Okay. I think I have ADD too. Okay. Why did God create this big, crazy, scary, chaotic, uninhabitable uh, environment Rather than just instantly doing what he was going to do anyways, which is form it into a nice, beautiful, blue, um, you know, earth that has land and animals and all of these things. Why is he there? That? That's the first question we need to ask. The second question we need to ask is, why is the Spirit of God there? Again, I know you're really familiar with this passage, so it's like, who cares, Sam? Like, it's kind of weird. Why is the Spirit of God hovering over the water? It's so weird. What's he doing there? What does it mean? What's the purpose? Those are the two questions that I want to answer this morning. Now, we need to dig into the imagery here, okay? Now, I'm not saying that we don't take Genesis too literally. Understand me, We take it literally. But we need to understand that the Bible has many layers. And one of those layers oftentimes is symbolism. And understanding that there are layers and layers of meaning and symbolism. And the author here of Genesis, who ultimately is God through Moses, is trying to communicate some things through the images that he is painting. Three in particular. Darkness, watery deepness, and formless void. He picks these three Pictures, these three images to describe the preformed universe, the fr- preformed cosmos. And he does so not just to make you curious, he does so to invoke a particular feeling in you when you read it. What is the feeling that you're supposed to get when you open up Genesis 1 and 1 and 2 and you read about this dark abyss of water, this empty, voided cosmos? What are you supposed to feel? And, and I'll tell you fear. You're supposed to feel fear. Darkness is both universally and biblically a metaphor for the absence of God. Okay? That's why Jesus, when he talks about hell, he says, cast the worthless servant into the outer, what? Darkness. Okay? It is both universally and biblically a symbol for the absence of God's life or God's presence you know you and I very rarely experience total darkness have you ever gone into way back into the back of a cave and then had everyone turn their lights off have you ever done that one time time. it's eerie It's completely eerie. I I mean, even at night, we have the moon, we have the stars. Even in our homes, you know, you have the little smoke detector light bulb that's flashing. Like you have something that's giving off a little bit of light. But in this particular thing that is being painted for us to see, this particular moment, it's complete darkness. Can you imagine trying to to live or, or have any kind of life with complete darkness? You couldn't. The second thing is watery deepness. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know exactly how to explain this, but somehow there was an abyss of deep water with no land. Now, why does that matter? What is that supposed to to create a feeling? It's supposed to create a feeling of terror. Why? Because you know what happens when you're in the ocean and there's no land? You drown. There's no harbor, right? There's no safety. Now, you remember that movie "Water World?" Do you guys remember that movie? Uh, that was the whole point of the movie. It was like this apocalyptic end of the world from the '90s, and the, somehow like the polar ice caps melted or something. and the whole world is covered in water. And it's like a terrifying existence, like everyone's living on boats, right? Okay, The reality is is that this watery abyss is terrifying. It's unhospitable to human life. Now, the ancients, and particularly the Hebrews, um, they viewed the sea as a chaotic, uncontrollable environment. It's very important that you understand that. They thought of the sea as literally being another kingdom. They describe it often as another kingdom. That makes a lot of sense when you start reading things like the book of Jonah. What is, you know, what is the book of Jonah symbolizing? I mean, Jonah is rebelling from God, and he goes out to sea in order to rebel from God. And in his rebellion, he gets cast into the sea. It's a terrifying reality. And when he gets back into the plan of God, the will of God, where does he end up? On land. The global flood makes a lot of sense when you realize that the ancients and that the the biblical authors and the Hebrews, they all understood the sea as being a terrifying, scary place and the global flood was the ultimate. Okay, and we'll look at that more in the weeks to come. So you have a watery deepness, you have a, 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 a deep darkness, and then you also have this formless void. What is that? It's formless, it doesn't have shape, and it's empty. It's unorganized, it's without purpose. Now every human understands that the absence of order is terrifying. The absence of any purpose is terrifying. I mean, the, one of the things I can think of as being hell-like is not having any purpose. Not having any order, not having anything to look forward to. I mean, just just, just a purposeless, voided existence. So all of these three things, they come together into this. The the, the description paints a universally understandable picture. Any human can pick up and read verses 1 and 2, and it's supposed to invoke a feeling of fear because it's painting a chaotic, uninhabitable, inhospitable, hostile, abyss-like environment. That is Genesis one verse 2. It's, it's entirely unsuitable for any created life. Now, here's the question that we're going to answer, and we're going to answer it in three answers. Number, what? why did God create the way that he did? Why did God start with this crazy cosmic chaos environment, with darkness? Why did he do that? And we'll answer it in, in, in three answers. To get to the first answer, I need you guys to see something, Okay. There's a pattern here that falls throughout the Bible that, that I need you to see, and so we're gonna do a little bit of Bible work this morning. Everybody got your Bible? We're gonna flip through some passages, okay? What I want you to see here is a pattern, a pattern that Genesis 1 verse 2 is picking up on uh, that God does continually. So God starts, we'll start with darkness. We're gonna look at all three of these things, darkness, voidness, if that's a word, um, and watery deepness. We're gonna look at all three of those. We'll start with darkness, okay? Why is it mentioned and why does it precede the light? So God starts with darkness, but he doesn't end with darkness. That was never his eternal intent, right? His plan was to what? Bring light. That was his plan. So in creation, first we see complete darkness. Now if you have the handout, you can follow along with this, um, and I have it up here too. So he starts with darkness, but then he quickly, immediately fills the darkness with light, and we'll get more into this next week. Um, at first, it's not the light from the sun. It's just light. He just creates light. And then later, on day three, he creates the, the light. And day four, he creates the stars and the moon for, to watch over the night, okay? But the point is, is that God creates darkness and then he creates light. Why does he do that? Why does he create darkness before he creates light? One of the answers is that the contrast of light is so much more beautiful when it comes out of the dark, have you ever been to a concert uh, or a performance? What do they do right before the performance starts? Pitch black. And it's this sense of what? Anticipation. What's about to happen? I remember going to a a rock concert one time where it was like, you know, you're like this, and there's like teenagers and teenagers' moms, and you're like, they're going to start moshing or whatever. And it's completely dark. And then it's like, Boom, like the lights come on and, and then the, the band is playing and it's loud and, but that little sense of anticipation. Movies do the same thing. Right before the movie starts, a lot of times if it's a dramatic movie, it'll be total dark and then the movie will come on. Darkness causes anti- anticipation of the light. Would you agree? So God starts with darkness and then boom, light comes on to the scene but then something happens in Genesis, Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three is the fall of creation. And what is the spiritual image of the fall of creation? Spiritual, what? Darkness. Darkness comes over the face of the earth. No, it's not physical darkness, we still have the sun, we still have the moon, but even though God created the world with light, after the sin, after the fall, after the curse, darkness takes over the earth. Flip with me to John chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus picks up on this in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people, what, loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about this spiritual reality that darkness has come into the world and those that belong to the darkness don't want the light to come because the light exposes their deeds. Okay, so that is the result of what I'm calling the deformation. We have creation, dark, formless, void. Then we have formation, and then at Genesis chapter three, we have deformation. But it doesn't end there. Flip over now to John chapter eight, verse 12. Now There's this pattern that comes up in the Bible regarding darkness. And you know what the pattern is? God turns the lights on. He turns the lights on. When it's dark, God turns the lights on. That's what Genesis 1 verse 2 is trying to tell us. When it's dark, God turns the lights on. How does he do it in our world? Spiritually. Chapter 8 verse 12. Listen to what Jesus says. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying what? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of the world of life. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, just like God created the world out of darkness, in the same way, through Jesus, God the Son, God is recreating the world through light again, out of darkness. Now, that's kind of cool, but it gets even more interesting. Flipping now to Revelation chapter 21. What happens at the very end when God fully finishes his work and we get the new heavens and the new earth? Some of you know where I'm going with this. Revelation 21, verse 22. John says, I saw no temple in the city. This is the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And this city has no need of what? Sun or moon to shine on it? Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamb, or His lamp is the. La- I got it backwards. Its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. Guys, how interesting is this? that in the second verse of the Bible, we find darkness. But immediately, God brings light. And in the moment that Jesus comes into the world, he comes into what? Darkness. But what is he? The light. And at the very end of the Bible, when we get the new heavens and the new earth, there is no darkness, because the light, Jesus, the lamb, lights everything up. How incredible is that? How incredible is that? Do you see the pattern? Let's do another one. Watery deepness. Okay, so not only is it dark, there's a watery deep abyss in chapter one, verse two of Genesis. Why is it mentioned and why does it precede dry land? Okay, so God creates this endless watery abyss. Again, this image would have invoked fear of the lostness of a world of only water. Water. But God doesn't keep it like that. What does he immediately do in chapter one of Genesis? He forms the dry ground. He takes the water and he forms dry ground among it. And what we're meant to feel here, what we're meant to see here as we read the book of Genesis is a fear of, wow, this watery abyss is lifeless, but God immediately creates a place for life. He creates land. And land is a place of stability. There's a contrast. Man, I'll never forget... When I went ocean fishing one time, and and we literally got in the boat like 3.30 in the morning, and we drove straight out of the middle of the ocean for four hours, and I have a really weak stomach, okay? And so I just went to sleep. I like slept the whole four hours, and then I got up, and we hit this kelp patty, and we cast our lines in, and we were just catching fish like crazy, yellowfin tuna and Dorado, and I caught two fish, which was awesome, but just the churning, like right back and forth while I'm fishing, I'm like, oh, I'm done set the pole down, heaving over the side. I actually threw up on a hammerhead shark. It was pretty cool. I was like trying to tell everybody while I was throwing, hey guys, uh, there's a shark down here. It was kind of cool. Anyways, so my fishing was done and then we had a four-hour trip all the way back to San Diego. I kissed the ground okay? This is the contrast that's supposed to be seen here. It wouldn't would have been lost, especially on the Hebrews. The Hebrews hated water, okay? They saw the sea as just this threatening, chaotic environment. And here, before God forms the world, he creates this chaos of water, but immediately he creates land. Land as a safe place. Now, just like darkness, what do we see happen? We see lostness come over the world. The world becomes a lost world, Ephesians 2 says you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Jesus came to save lost people. Why are they lost? They're lost because the world is back into a form of chaos. But Jesus comes along and look I want you to see what he says. Matthew chapter 4 verse 18. I want you to see what he tells the disciples to do. Regarding this lost world. Chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, I will make you what? Fishers of men. Now we read that and we think, okay, well, that makes sense. It was a play on words. They were fishermen. He was repurposing their job. Okay, that's true. And we look at that and we go, I get it. You're catching people. You know, you're know, you making disciples. That's true. But there's so much more depth to that command than we realize. And the only way you realize it is if you step back into the ancient Hebrew mindset. And as I already said, they saw the ocean, the sea, as being another kingdom. And so the idea of catching a fish out of the sea was like catching someone from one kingdom and transferring them into another kingdom. But why do they need transferring? Because the world is in a state of lostness. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the world being an abyss is a, a picture of a spiritual reality that is where we live now. We live in a world that is covered in water, spiritually lost, people are lost, and we are going out to transfer those people out of one into the other. Now, it is absolutely, listen, to me, this is so important, it is absolutely no mistake that when Jesus showed up on the scene, he put water in its place, didn't he? Do you remember Jesus sleeping in the boat, massive storm? These these Galilean fishermen are terrified for their life. They think they're going to die. Their tiny little 10-foot vessel is just flying around everywhere and Jesus is just snoozing and they wake him up and he gets up and what does he do? He speaks and water obeys him. He has all power over creation. You know what else he did with water? He walked on it. Just put it in its place. Just so you know, water, I made you. I made you. He is the answer to the dilemma of the lostness of this world. Now flip to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. I just geek out on this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is an interesting But Revelation 21, 1 and 2. When I thought of this this week, I was like, whoa, how interesting. 21, 1 and 2. Again, this is new heavens and new earth. It's a really important chapter in the Bible, by the way. You should read it a lot. Especially when you feel like the world's falling apart. I saw a new heaven, John says, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the what? Sea was no more. Where'd it go? It's gone. Now, how interesting. Is it starting to come into frame for you? The the eternal created state that God has, there's no darkness. There's no sea. What he's saying is what he's getting at is that there, there is no threatening environment. This is a safe, eternal, resting place. What is happening in Genesis chapter one, verse two, is the total contrast of what we see in Revelation 21. It is a purposeless, chaotic, abyss world. And God takes that, and he forms it, and he shapes it. So, here's the answer to our question. We asked, why did God create the way he did? Why did he start with matter? Chaotic, dark, abyss, matter, and the first answer is simply this. God builds from the things that seem frightening and chaotic. He builds from the things that seem frightening and chaotic. He, he takes the things that we look at in Genesis 1 and 1 and 2 and they, they elicit this deep fear and, and, and terror in us. And he says, actually, you know, I'm going to build out of that. He, he created land, and and everything that came from it, from the raw, terrifying material of Genesis 1, verse 2. And that's exactly what he does in our lives. When we see disaster, God sees potential. When we see chaos, God sees potential. When we see something terrifying, God sees potential. Okay? Now, first of all, I, I want you to think not just what that means to you, but I want you to think about what that would have meant to those that first read the book of Genesis. Because Genesis was written to an original audience. Did you know that? You know who it was? It was the Hebrews. It was the Israelites who had just recently been freed from the grips of Egypt. And what are they doing? They're wandering in the wilderness. And it feels like the world is hostile and chaotic and dark and and, and terrifying and everything is out to get them. At times it even felt like God was out to get them. They're in a very vulnerable state. And when Moses writes down for these Hebrews, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, he wants them to go, oh, God takes the chaotic things, and he forms out of them. God takes the darkness, and he turns the lights on. God takes the watery deepness, the lostness, and he forms dry ground out of it. He takes things that seem scary, and he forms them into something. And I want to ask you guys, what feels frightening, chaotic, and dark in your life right now? What is it? And Whatever that is, whatever that thing is, I, I assure you that God has a plan for it. He has a plan for it. Maybe it's your, your past sins and regrets, and you just can't get past them. I, just, I did this thing in my past. It's just haunting me. I used to be this person, and I just don't know what to do with that. This is so I'm just going to hide it. I'm going to bury it because it's scary. It's terrifying. It's a watery abyss. It's a cosmic chaos. I don't want it. And God says, "Hey, actually, I want to use that thing in your life to create humility and empathy and a desire to minister to other people that have that same thing." He wants to take the chaos and he wants to form it because that's how God rolls. Yes, I just said that's how God rolls. <laughs> I'm super gangster. <laughs> Your past pains and hurts, things that have been done to you. It feels chaotic, feels unmanageable. I don't know how to deal with the pain of what's happened, how people have treated me. Okay, um, Surely the way that I am useful for God is that I bury that crap down in the ground and I move on to the good things he has for me in life, like all the good things I've done since I started walking with him. Um, no, no. It's not how God works. He takes the chaotic things. He takes the painful things. He takes the harsh things and he forms life out of them. God could have just created the universe, but instead he created a chaotic universe and then he formed it. God could have just made you perfect, but he didn't do that. He created you flawed. He created you in, in such a way where you walked in sin and you chose sin and you created a life that's a mess. And other people's sin created a life that's a mess for you. But He takes that mess and He sees potential in it and He creates something out of it. Your worst fears, your worst concerns, God wants to use those to build faith in you, to build confidence in Him. The areas that feel uncontrollable in your life for some of you, it's your kids, for some of you, it's your marriage. For some of you, it's Corona. For some of you, it's Kate Brown. For some of you, it's whatever. It, it's just I can't control this. I have to shut my business down. This is uncontrollable. I'm afraid of this. I'm worried about that. Whatever it is, God wants to form something out of those chaotic realities. Psalm chapter 95, verse four, just write it down. I'll read it for you. That was a sign from the Lord. <laughs> That was Keith's staff, the shepherd's staff. Didn't turn into a snake, but that's okay. (laughs) Bible jokes. Psalm 95, verse 4. In his hand, who? The Lord. In his hand are the depths of the earth. Similar language. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands formed the dry land. And then the psalmist switches from pointing out the power of God immediately to pointing out the comfort of God. He says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today if you hear his voice. So what, what what is this psalmist doing? I did something interesting this week. I took two hours and I literally read every single verse in the Bible that had anything to do with creation. It took me a long time. There's a lot of verses, anything to do with creation. And you know what I noticed? Almost every single one of them uses creation to affirm the power of God and to affirm your trust in him. The same God that created the heavens, the same God that formed nothing into something, the the same God that formed chaos into order is the same God that you can trust. He is comforting you. His staff guides you, right? I just see how I tied that in. That was more distracting than helpful. That's the point. <laughs> and we're also here, there's one, there's one more thing. We have darkness, we have a watery deepness, and then thirdly, we have this idea of a formless void. None of these words are by accident, okay? you can just read right through Genesis 1-2 and not think anything of it, but the words formless and void have tons of implications for us biblically, and I want you to see that as well. It means empty, unorganized, without purpose or order. God doesn't leave it that way, right? What does he do? He takes what is void and he takes what is empty and he takes what is formless and he forms it into something, what, full. What do we see him doing? Genesis chapter one, he fills the earth. He fills it with plant life and animal life and human life and he gives it purpose and he, he makes everything have a place. It's very organized. God is an organized God. If you're type A, you can always claim that. Hey, God, God's organized. Okay. He is. He, he filled the earth. He gave it purpose. He didn't leave it formless and void. His plan was never to leave it formless and void. His plan was always to fill it, to give it purpose, to give it structure. And that's exactly what he does. Do you guys love before and after pictures? Like, those are the best, right? I remember I made a table one time. I don't even know how I pulled it off. It was like a total. I, I, I never made a table, but I was able to make this table with some help, um, and I just, I just remember like thinking about the pile of wood before the table, and it just gives me delight when I look at the table. I think, oh, that was a pile of wood, and now it's a table, okay? God enjoys taking what's laying around, the formless things, the void things, the things that are empty, and, and giving them purpose, and that's exactly what he does between Genesis 1, 1, and 2 and the rest of the chapter. He takes something that's empty, formless, void, and he fills it. He gives it purpose, But what happens in Genesis 3? What happens in Genesis 3? We get deformation. We go backwards, okay? We get spiritual emptiness. God created the earth full, but when sin entered, it created a deep emptiness. Now the world is still full of life, but inside of you, you have this intrinsic deep emptiness. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is about that. There's a void, a formless void inside of your heart. The curse of Adam has created, do you remember what what the curse of Adam was? Adam, you're gonna work and work and work and work and you're still not gonna be satisfied. That was the curse of Adam. Formless, void, purposeless. So that's why suicides are so high right now. This is a reality. People feel formless, they feel void, they feel empty, they don't have anything to live for because that's the curse of Adam, is emptiness. But listen to me, God doesn't leave it that way. He never meant to leave it that way. His purpose wasn't to create a formless, void, empty, purposeless world. His purpose was to, f- to create a world that is filled and has purpose. It's interesting in Romans chapter 8. I won't have you turn there. Romans chapter 8 says, yet in verse 18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation, it's talking about the cosmos, the created universe, all creation was subjected to futility. Isn't that interesting? And then it says, all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So creation has been subjected to this futility. It was empty, God filled it, and then through Adam it became empty again. And what is God going to do? he's gonna fill it again. He's gonna fill it with purpose. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing when he said go and make disciples of all nations. Fill the earth, refill the earth with God's purpose. And when you accomplish God's purpose, you become the hand of God's purpose. You refill his earth. You reform the chaos that sin has created. And what do we see in Revelation 21 at the very end of the book? We see a world that is filled with God's glory. And God's purpose. We see a a, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and literally the earth becomes the place for God to fill with His glory. He doesn't leave it empty, He doesn't leave it purposeless, He doesn't leave it void. And here's my point number two, why did God create the way He did? Because God builds from things that seem formless and empty. He builds from the stuff laying around. He always does. Like I said in the beginning, you know, Jesus is gonna make wine, He doesn't just make wine, He takes water. He's gonna multiply bread, he doesn't just make bread, he takes bread and he multiplies it because that's how God works. He takes things that seem like they have no purpose and he uses them. Not only does he take the chaotic things and the dark things like we talked about, but he also takes the purposeless things. And I don't know about you guys, I feel like I have a lot of purposeless things in my life. And I don't, I don't think that's sinful, I think that's just life. You know, like, like just, why? Why do we do dishes? Why do do we, you know, why do we, uh, in my house, it's white bottoms. You know, it's like whatever. You know, whatever. Rake leaves. This is purposeless stuff. What's the point of this? What would this have meant to the original audience? You know, when the Hebrews were reading Genesis 1, 1 and 2 and they see God taking something formless and void and shaping it. The Jews, they didn't feel very formed. They They didn't feel very shaped. They felt like a bunch of slaves that just ran away from Egypt. I mean, the, the stories of creation, that, that, was, that was like mythology to them. They, didn't, they hadn't heard from God. God hadn't done anything until just then when Moses showed up and all of a sudden all this miraculous stuff happens and then the next thing you know, they're in the wilderness. They're this formless group of slaves. They have no identity. They have no purpose. They don't know why they're out there other than the fact that God told them to they're formless they're void and then they open the book of genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and they read in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and it was formless and it was void but what happened god didn't leave it that way he took the formless void and he created something beautiful out of it one commentator says just as the potter when he wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel Takes the first of all a lump of clay and places it upon his wheel in order to mold it according to his will. So the creator first prepared for himself the raw material with a view to giving it afterwards order in life. Here's my theory. Here's why I think God made a bunch of stuff and then he formed it into something. Because I think God wanted you today to know, and he wanted the, the first people that would have read Genesis to know that God is in the business of forming. He's in the business of forming. That's what he does. He's a forming God. He likes to form like a potter would take a lump of clay and turn it into something beautiful. And there is maximized glory in that as opposed to just creating something. There is maximized glory in that. God takes what's laying around, and he uses it. He took what was in Moses' hand, which was just what? A shepherd's staff, and he made it miraculous. He took 12 men that were just fishing and hanging around in a podunk town called Galilee, and he turned them into something. He turned them into the disciples, the apostles, the, the, those that would begin the movement of Christianity and build the church. God uses the everyday stuff of life. and My guess is every single one of you in here feel like most of your life is everyday stuff common stuff. God uses that stuff. He uses it every day for his most miraculous work. And one of the things we've said here at Philippi from the beginning is that we're not going to go looking to to attract a certain type of person to do the certain thing we want. We're going to let God bring whoever he wants and whatever he wants and whatever he puts in front of us, we're going to say yes to it. And you know what he's put in front of us? 2020. Why, Lord? Of all years. But this is what he's put in front of us. He takes the common things. He takes the scary things. He takes the frustrating things and he shapes them. He shapes us. And here's point number three. Why did God create the way he did? Because God builds through process. So many of you in here need to hear that this morning. He builds through process. One of the questions I've always had is, why, Lord, didn't you just save me and make me perfect? Why are you making me have to grow? It hurts, I don't like it. Frustrating, sanctification, the big word for growing in Christ, it's hard. That's how God works. He takes things and in process, he forms them. That's what God does. Jesus could have come, think about this, he could have come as a full-grown, perfect sacrifice, but he didn't come that way. What did he come as? He came as a baby. And he grew up. And Hebrews 5 even says he had to learn obedience. He had to go through the process of maturation. We don't get to just become glorified. We have to first be sanctified. Humanity wasn't just immediately redeemed. Jesus could have gone to the cross and the whole thing could have been over. But instead, here we are 2,000 years later. Why? Because God works through process. He's a God of process. He works through process. He works through time. It's the way that it suits him to work. And that's ultimate reality. So we got to get on board with that. You say, I don't like growing, it takes too long. Take it up with God. He builds that way, He grows that way. What this would have meant to the original audience, to the Jews, to the Hebrews, Was that God was doing something with them? That while they're sitting in the desert, wandering around, that God had a plan, He had a purpose for them. They were in process. And the same thing is to be reminded of us this morning that we are in process. Now, there's one last question we need to ask. And that question is what in the world is the Holy Spirit doing there? (laughs) Okay, remember our two questions why did God create stuff and then form it? Second question is why is the Spirit of God there? It says, particularly the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Does anyone else find that interesting? If not, I can, we can just be done. Is anybody curious? Okay, yes. okay. If you're curious, we'll get into it. Okay. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, okay? And it means breath it means both breath and it's it's used to refer to his breath it's also used to refer to his spirit the two ideas are synonymous but here's the reality when god creates he creates by his breath, the breath of his spirit. Somehow there's a Trinitarian thing going on there because it says in Colossians that in the beginning God created through him. John 1 says the same thing. But also when God creates, he does it by his spirit. He breathes his spirit into life. When God made Adam, he took, here's the recipe. You might wanna write it down if you wanna create a human. You take dirt and then you take God's breath. You put the two together and you get a human. Okay, that's the recipe for creating life. Without the spirit, what is Adam? He's dirt. Why do you feel so empty without the Lord? Because you're just dirt. Without the spirit of God, without the breath of God, without the life, without the animi- animating life of God, you're just, you dirt. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath, the ruach of his mouth. Job 33.4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath, Ruach, of the Almighty gives me life. The Spirit of God gives life. What's my point? My point is simply this, is that we are meant to see a pattern here in Genesis chapter one, verse two, and that is when the Spirit of God is there, buckle up, because life's about to happen. We see a chaotic, formless, dark abyss. What hope is there for that? The hope is that the Spirit of God is hovering above it. And why is the Spirit of God hovering above it? Because the lights are about to blast on and the land is about to appear and God is about to take something that is chaotic and shape it into something that is beautiful. When Jesus, the new Adam, the new creation, the greatest hope, the light of the world the one who would save lost men. When Jesus came up out of the water of baptism, what do we see? Think about it. The spirit of God. And what is he doing? He's hovering over the new Adam, the new creation, the great hope for the cosmos. When the spirit of God is hovering above, things are about to happen. When Pentecost happens, the birth, the beginning of the early church, Jesus heads to the right end of the Father, the holy spirit comes down what happens at pentecost the spirit of god is there he's hovering over his church when god creates again and restores the universe we see specifically in revelation verse 1 or chapter 1 verse 4 john the seven churches that are in asia grace to you peace from him who is and who was and who is to come that's Uh, the Father, from the seven Spirits, referring to the Holy Spirit, who are before his throne. So when God is getting ready to recreate the universe, the Spirit of God is there. Okay, so what, Sam? So here's the reality. The Spirit's presence should bring a sense of anticipation that God is going to do something amazing. Okay, can I ask you an obvious question? Where does the Spirit of God live? That's right. And not only just in you individually, where does he live? He lives in the church. He lives in the church because you're the stones. Because why? God builds out of what's laying around. And you know what was laying around? You. He built his temple in order that the spirit of God might be in it. So when you read Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and you see chaos and you see formlessness and you see darkness, I want you to see that the point is that the spirit of God is there ready to turn it all upside down. Ready to form it into something beautiful and into something amazing. The Spirit of God is here. The Spirit of God is in his church. The Spirit of God lives within each of you that has received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that means that he is going to and is doing miraculous things. We gotta remember that. The enemy doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to read Genesis 1, verse 2 and go, wow, the same spirit that hovered over the waters and then explosive created life came out of the mouth of God is living in me and in this church. He doesn't want you to believe that because if you believe that, you'll start doing things differently. You'll start trusting that that same life that spoke the cosmos into existence can speak life out of your mouth into the lost person right in front of you. He doesn't want you to believe that. He doesn't want you to know that the Spirit of God is just ever waiting for you to invite Him to glorify Christ in your life. Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2 should be a reminder to you forever of the fact that God is in the business of shaping beauty from chaos and He does it by His Spirit. Amen?